Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Episode 12 of Compliance Clarified marks the end of the first season of the podcast. We are delighted that we've already got more than 2,700 subscribers in 42 jurisdictions. So thank you. Thank you so much for making Compliance Clarified such a success. So far, we have covered topics as diverse as the future direction of US regulation, digital transformation in China, as well as the implications of the Gloucester Report for the UK Financial Conduct Authority. We've also discussed TRRI special reports on cost of compliance, on fintech regtech and the role of compliance, and most recently, the regtech governance lifecycle. Now, to round off our first season of Compliance Clarified, we're going to talk about all things Brexit, specifically what the future interaction and relationship between the UK and the EU might look like, and what that might mean for financial services firms and their compliance officers. With me to begin to discuss how Brexit is unfolding in practice are Lindsay Rogerson, Senior Editor, Regulatory Risk at TORI, and Rachel Walcott, Senior Editor, Risk and Compliance at TORI. Now, the mood music on the post-Brexit approach to UK-EU financial services has ebbed and flowed and has in the past had let's say, distinct moments of acrimony. However, more recently, the tone has shifted, and Mairead McGuinness, EU Financial Services Commissioner, has said she is very hopeful that the EU and the UK are close to an agreement on a memorandum of understanding for their future relationship on financial services. Now, the MOU is being broadly modelled on the agreement the EU already has with the US, and will be aimed at creating what has been badged a stable and durable basis on which to build future cooperation. Future cooperation does not necessarily mean equivalence, nor does it mean simplified market access in either direction. What it is likely to mean is an agreed way to manage a divergent approach to compliance with the supranational policymaking coming out of the Financial Stability Board. And the FSB translates that policymaking through the standard setting bodies, and those are Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, BCBS or simply Basel, the International Organization of Securities Commissions, better known as IOSCO, and the International Association of Insurance Supervisors, IAIS. So, Memorandum of Understanding, potentially very close to agreement. Lindsay, where are we now on that? Hello, Susanna. It's lovely to join you again. Um, Where are we with the MOU? We are recording this at the very end of March, but not quite the end of March. So I don't want to make us a hostage to fortune by saying it should definitely be signed by the end of the month. But that is what uh, Mered McGuinness has said uh, three times in the last week now. So fingers crossed that's where we are. what does that actually mean and what is the MOU? You, you've, you've given uh, an outline above, but I have been, um, I think, it, surprised at times to hear people commenting on the, the lack of detail that would be in this document. And I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding about what this document actually is. 
this document is an agreement between the Commission and HM Treasury to talk and cooperate. It is not the practical ins and outs of how regulators will cooperate. But those memorandums already exist. They were put in place. That's what helped keep us stable as we uh, ticked out of the um, European Union at the end of the year. So, um, so what these, what this MOU will deliver is is basically a commitment to talk regularly. And if you, um, if uh, listeners are particularly interested, you can find the minutes from both the US EU forums and the Japanese EU forums um, quite easily um, online. I'll, we can put a link in the show notes. But what I mean, these these minute documents are are, are basically two pages long. They show you that uh, since the US um, EU one has been forum has been running since 2016, they met three times in 2016, once in 2017, once in 2018, twice in 2019. Um, and twice in 2020. And if they have met this year, the minutes aren't available as yet. The Japanese one, um, there's been two meetings there. And again, it's a two-page summary document. I think these documents are interesting because the, the basis on which these groups were set up is actually different. The EU and, and Japan have an economic cooperation agreement which certainly in the um, when people were talking about the future relationship between the EU and the UK, uh, there was a there was a push to get something akin to what Japan has in this in this document. We're, we are not getting that. What we're going to get is um, something uh, along the lines of the US document, as Susanna's already mentioned. And but if you look at the practicality of how these groups operate from as, as displayed by the minutes, there's really not that much difference. There's evidence in the Japanese uh, most recent meeting, which was in November 2020, that the regulators had shared um, thinking about projects that they had underway. The EU shared um, something on their digital transformation project, for example. And I can't remember off the top of my head what Japan shared, but it was an exchange. But if you look at the U.S. minutes, you'll see equally, um, you know, that sharing of high level, you know, uh, agreement they are they where they can coordinate on various things it um, at the international forums. They 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 you know, that's it. That's it. That's there. And then um, you'll also find evidence of them talking about uh, this is the U.S. EU talking about CCPs. And of course, we've seen that translated um, in January into the. ESMA CFTC um, cooperation, uh, enhanced cooperation agreement at the regulatory level. So these are, as I said, these are, if you look who attends, these are treasury level, government level cooperations, and then everything else flows underneath that. So sorry if I bored you with the, the science bit, but I think it's just important to be absolutely clear. And because that takes us on to what does this mean? And as we discussed, um, when was I think the first one of these podcasts we all did uh, together? Um, we're not nobody's sitting waiting for equivalence. Nobody seriously thinks that the floodgates are going to open on equivalence um, on this. Um, you know, as you know, as soon as the MOU has signed, and um, Mary McGuinness has been very clear that that is is not going to happen. But as 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 you said, the mood music is 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 changing. But 
um, nobody should really be sitting waiting for equivalence. So what does that take us on to? Well, that takes us on to the lovely subject of um, divergence, which is already starting to appear and which Rachel and I are going to outline as we as we go as we go through this. So um, I think I heard somebody describe recently. It's kind of like ping pong. The the UK says it's going to um, look at something, and then the EU then starts to look at it. And you know, equally, we've seen the EU MIFID refit, um, and now the UK is looking at various bits. Um, you know, uh, there so. Uh, Rachel, do you want to kick off? Yeah, sure. I, mean, I think everybody should start a scorecard and keep it on their desk or in one of their files so they can keep track of all these various consultations and reviews that are happening in the UK and on the continent. So we'll just cover some of the UK ones just for the sake of brevity <laughs> because it's actually quite a long list. So. Well, we've had some consultations already, uh, for example, the Hill Review, which was looking at uh, changing some of the equity capital markets, uh, listing requirements and whatnot to attract uh, more business to the UK there through IPOs. And they were talking about SPACs and all different kinds of things. And so that's something that's been finished and is you know, on the table. Uh, we've had the Khalifa review, which is uh, or a report, which is all about fintech, which Lindsay can tell you a little bit more about in a sec. Uh, there's a bunch of different treasury reviews, either that have been concluded recently, like the future of financial services. They're having a solvency two review. Uh, then kind of in the background, and we might have spoken about this last time, we've got this Ian Duncan Smith what the, a lot of the press likes to call here the you know the bonfire of the regulations let's see what we can rip up and throw away and he <laughs> and he's uh joined up with a well-known city uh, lawyer called barney reynolds from uh, sherman and sterling and they've been uh collaborating on a very unique approach to financial services post-brexit which can be summarized as um everything can be litigated um let's just you know base everything on common law and you know figure it out in the courts that'll be that's a, it's a view and well it, it is a view it doesn't really take uh shall we say complete notice of the fact we are a member of the g20 and the financial stability board's policy making might just apply to all of this so i mean i i respect their ability to have an opinion However, yep. I don't feel it is hugely likely to be the future. Yeah, uh, that one I would call an outlier. But uh, Barney Reynolds is starting to host his uh, monthly uh, webinars through the what's it, the CSFI on uh, on Brexit, and so he will be giving it the old college try. That's for sure, and. Uh, we're also going to have a MIFID review in the summer, and maybe this is a good time to start talking about it in terms of BRIFID, because we like to, you know, Brexit, we like to put BR on the front of everything, so we can call it BRIFID and Bermier. So we could, you know, that's another divergence that we can all kind of 
get into. Um, Lindsay, did you want to add anything on the Khalifa report? Um, I do, but I just wanted to um, chime in just first of all about the the why. So the Treasury has run its various consultations, as Rachel said, and then we also have this IDS review going on, apparently at the behest of Boris Johnson. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Rachel, but I think that's right. So it's a bit, it's a bit well, that's confusing. that's what Duncan Smith says. Yeah. yeah, and it's a bit confusing for industry as to where do you input, you know, uh, who is actually pulling the strings on this, who is in charge. And so that that's something which will, will play out, I guess. So that aside, if I just pick up Khalifa, the Khalifa um, actually, for those of you who haven't read it, has a really good um, financial regulation section, a chapter in it, which was put together by um, Kay Swinburne, ex-MEP uh, and uh, vice chair of the um, Econ Committee. It, in the European Parliament, and um, Rachel at, um, whose second name escapes me, I'm so sorry, Rachel uh, <laughs> at um, a law firm whose name also escapes me right this moment, so that's, that's a bit embarrassing. Anyway, it's well worth a read, and there's some good recommendations in it um, from expanding the, the, uh, the sandbox to um, offer help. Yeah. Make further up the box. chain a scale yeah, box scale yes box, to yeah. to and as as rachel's reported um uh, before the a lot of the uh, sandbox companies get into trouble when they are let loose in the big world they they don't have the um the, the compliance and 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 the governance in place and so this the scale box is partly to help uh see them through those hurdles and hopefully not have so many of them get end up in 166s in the in in the future um, some of the other things in Khalifa um, include uh, a digital ID, which I think I mentioned the last time, and I'm sure we will come on to in series two, um, you know, which seems to be a fundamental building block for moving a lot of this, this stuff forward. Um, interestingly, uh, both I think both the Hill Review and Khalifa talk about allowing um, fintech entrepreneurs to keep more control of their companies as they develop and you know this is to do with the listings regime i did smile when i read um an interview with the ceo of pensions b who's about to float and she was very adamant that she did not need um to uh, this sort of distorted voting control mechanism in order to uh to float her business she you know she wasn't swayed by it so i thought that was interesting um I think that's I think that's all I want to cover for now because I think we will keep coming back to Khalifa and Hill um, and you know the future of regulation uh, in the UK. Um, in, yeah, I you think know, so certainly too. in series yeah, two. I think so too. Yeah. Um, so I think what should we do first? Should we do? Why don't we t talk a little bit more about Mifid because that's such a big deal or Brifid, and <laughs> so for the Trifid. So we we're already having is this cross-channel ping-pong in terms of what's going on with MIFID. And the first thing that happened with MIFID is we already have, we have divergence already because the EU passed a quick fix, a MIFID quick fix uh, at the end of February. It started in, I think, July, so not very quick, but it's there now. And it covers a bunch of things like uh, best execution reporting in RTS 27 is dropped. Uh, we've 
they're simplifying some of the commodity derivatives uh, regime in terms of position limits. They're simplifying certain investor protection requirements. I think this is mainly around like certain investors don't need to have a bunch of paper. <laughs> and they're also have uh, eased some of the rules on paying for research for SMEs and on bonds. So that was, you know, that stuff that's already different and hasn't been changed in the UK. Uh, me, and I think research is a good one to pick up on uh, quickly because that is another thing that the French never liked and they've been against from the get-go on MIFID. Isn't that right, Linz? Yeah, that, that is that is true. And um, the, the Brits were definitely the driving force behind this going in. What is interesting, though, is... Um, we keep talking about we keep hearing a lot we always hear about evidence-based regulation from you know uh, from from regulators and supervisors and the uk and esma and i think esma's now done two research goes around at this have found absolutely no evidence of what has been claimed that ruth's research has diminished and there's a lack of coverage um and despite that these rules are being changed so i just think it's quite interesting to note that they are doing this despite the evidence that it hasn't actually harmed and a lot of people were paying for rubbish before you know um so well not paying for rubbish but receiving rubbish because it was being passed you know the way it was being paid for wasn't yeah, overtly so, packaged up yeah so yeah it'll be interesting to see what else develops there um do I you want to yeah i'll talk a little more okay about what we might see changing on the UK side, on the Briffid side. So uh, last week or a couple weeks ago, uh, Edwin Schoolingladder, who's the one of the policy uh, people over at the Financial Conduct Authority, uh, made, a, made a speech where he set out uh, some things that the FCA is uh, looking at in terms of MIFID changes or tweaks. And he said he's going to uh, put out, they'll be putting out a response to the uh, EU uh, MIFID quick fix, and it's not going to be identical, but he said it'll be equally effective in achieving the same desired outcomes. Um, so the, those quick fixes were all pr pretty small in the grand scheme of things. What the FCA is looking at that's going to be more interesting or potentially more impactful for uh, UK firms is going to be around um, uh, some of the transparency regime. Uh, apparently, the FCA was never a big fan of the double volume cap and limits on dark pool trading. This is something uh, Edwin Schooling Ladder mentioned. He will be considering going forward in the MIFID uh, consultation in the summer. And he said that they would be looking to achieve the double volume cap in a different way. Um, he also mentioned commodity derivatives regime and positions uh, limits and that there's a scope to substantially simplify the regime. And... Rach, if I can just yeah. um, cut in there, I just wanted to 
Um, I remember the debates around the commodities and where the driving force for this was. And this wasn't actually, the, the Brits were not the driving force for this. The driving force for this um, were actually the NGOs and the, and the charities yeah. that thought that a lot yeah. of this commodity stuff was actually causing poverty and food um you know food scarcity yeah. and so it'll be interesting to see um if those voices are uh, are heard in the uk when this comes up for debate yeah it's something that's definitely um being heard in the eu because one of the econ members uh sven giegel is very hot on this topic it's one of the things that he's been interested in for a long time i forgot to mention that um i think the uh, EU will be not easing up on uh, dark pool trading and the double volume cap. Uh, they recognize that MIFID II hasn't achieved this shift to the lit markets that they really wanted, but they're not, I, don't, I get the sense that they're not giving up, that they might double down on this, or I don't know, double down is probably not the right way to talk about it, but they're going to try and shore it up and force more trading onto lit markets. Um, and I, I just don't get the sense that the FCA is going to follow suit in that regard. Um, you know, another uh, key thing that uh, Edwin Schoolinglatter said the other week, and we can put the link to this um, speech in the, in the show notes too, because it's actually a really good summary uh, for anybody who's looking to update their uh, consultation and divergence scorecard. <laughs> but he just, he said, the key point is that we have important opportunities to refine our framework for securities and derivatives trading in a way that helps those doing business here without sacrificing equivalent outcomes in terms of investor protection and market integrity. So, you know, the like I said, the speech is a good place to... Um, start off uh, formulating your spreadsheet or your scorecard to see where where things are going and keeping track of all these different regimes and regulations mm -hmm. that are on the table right now. Um, you know, that, that, that really was one of the drawbacks with MIFID. I mean, MIFID mm -hmm. 2 in particular. Um, I mean, there were, I think there was 900 plus questions asked by ESMA in, in, in the consultation and firms moved heaven and earth to give comprehensive responses and say this doesn't work in practice this does so on and so on and so on esma by and large ignored a lot of them and business changed because rules were unworkable in practice rules were just too blooming difficult to comply with so business stopped in those areas and I do hope in this iteration for on both sides, to be fair, Financial Conduct Authority and ESMA and Europe, that actually they listen to the industry because the industry has an absolute vested interest in not having a rubbish rule book that you can't comply with in practice, because that just has swathes of unintended consequences that they're now kind of putting sticking plaster over and um, the best execution um, it is, is the absolute case in point. Best X was so difficult to comply with, firms walked away from that business. So I do hope there's a healthy dose of practicality. I mean, nobody is saying good customer outcomes should be ignored in any way, shape or form, but have a practically workable rule book 
And that just makes life simpler for everybody, regulators and investors alike, as well as the firms themselves. Yeah, I think it's particularly the case on some of the consumer protection uh, points in MIFID II that they are so difficult <laughs> that people might be thinking more about how they're going to deliver the various documents to customers rather than thinking about the actual products. And I think one thing that we've seen here in the UK is that a lot more thought needs to put, be put into some of these products that are mm. being churned out to uh, the retail client base. We've had that uh, issue come up time and again here and all these various disclosure forms. And we were talking about the um, high net worth eligibility criteria and whatnot last time. It doesn't seem to amount to a hill of beans at the end of the day. No, absolutely. And I think one thing, a tidying up exercise that the industry would welcome in the UK now that we can, you know, do this and not have to debate it, you know, 27 times and then some, is um, when the uh, customer disclosure uh, was being put into MIFID, uh, into PRIPS and into IMD, originally it all started off the same. However, because of the EU legislative process, it got changed and it's in three pieces of legislation differently. And so one thing that I think everyone would welcome the UK addressing is actually that, you know, that documentation across those three pieces of legislation, mm. bring it together. So they've got one industry's got one set of rules. But also, I think in terms of um, disclosures, and we're, we're most likely going to talk about product governance in season two, you have to have information given to customers that they've actually got a fighting chance of going to read. Do not give them a 47-page book full of terms and conditions and opaque language because they won't get past the first paragraph. You have to have key information in a succinct and easy-to-digest form as is possible. And I would suggest that some of the legislation that has come out of Europe perhaps has not achieved that at all. So a big chance to simplify it take advantage of the behavioural risk evidence and so on that is there also and make that information and the clarity of that information as easy as possible. Now, clear English is some of the hardest thing to write as we're all writers. We all know clear English can be tough at times, but that has to be what firms aim for, because otherwise we're back into the loop of customers not understanding what they bought. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that absolutely. serves nobody. Yeah, Abs absolutely. Um. I will just canter through a couple more things that we've already started to notice uh, uh, be flagged in the ping pong, the great ping pong game that we were talking about. Um, and then Rachel can come back to, with Emir, which is uh, her specialist mastermind area. Um, <laughs> I hope okay. not. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so um, the AIFMD um, is obviously being reviewed. This consultation had closed with the Commission, um, and also it's something that's on the UK radar. Why does this matter? It matters because this is where delegation is being first looked at post-Brexit. Um, if you look at the responses, which I trolled through, through, there are some 
really what I would describe as screaming no responses and lots of them um, to some of what is proposed and certainly the industry and various regulators, national regulator, member state regulators are not um, absolutely not going to uh, stand for any attempt to align delegation, alter delegation, align delegation in um especially sorry between amfd and and usits um you know they i some of the some of the responses actually made me quite la- laugh you know uh, in their you know their this if you could possibly scream no from a page they were doing it um but on a very serious point um what a lot of them were pointing out that the implementation of these regulations has been expensive it has been time consuming um, for both NCAs and industry, and they really shouldn't be, again, uh, altered without an evidence base. And, and everybody, um, the KPMG report that was done for the Commission, that very much suggested that uh, this is a regulation which is working well. Okay, if I turn now to the investment firms regulation, um, obviously the UK is going to have its own version of this. We saw the first of three consultations in December. Um, and the new regime will be in place from 2022. It's not clear yet how this is going to be different from the EU version, which has already been implemented, um, but um, it's another area uh, of, of this divergence to watch for. Um, the last one I want to flag is, is the Basel III. Um, the, uh, the UK has got a consultation out um, on Merle, which is the minimum requirement for own funds and eligible liabilities. Um, so what, and this was well flagged by Sam Woods um, before Brexit is something he'd like to address. So this is to do with um, basically giving, freeing up uh, capital uh, requirements for banks that are not uh, GSIBs, which is globally systemically important banks, or something they call DSIBs, which is domestically significantly important banks, systemically important banks. So it would um, uh, it would help the ch- challenger banks and that next level down of banks. So that's what's happening in the UK. However, going back several years, this issue about Basel III being misapplied by the EU, that's how the German Banking Association describes it, not me, um, to apply to all banks rather than just those globally systemic banks, which is what Basel III was allegedly supposed to be about. Um, again, German Banking Association, not me. Um, so th- there, and there, there's um, more, more recently, um, about two weeks ago, there was a reporting of a sort of spat between the Italian banking authorities and the um, ECB again around the same the same issue of uh, the smaller banks being treated um smaller domestic banks having to be put in the same boat as the gsips i will leave it there rich okay so just for the last uh but not least and not the this isn't a uh, a thorough run well it is quite thorough but it's not a complete rundown of all the things that you need to think about in terms of divergence, but EMIR, which is the European Market Infrastructure Regulation, is going to be a issue for UK banks. Uh, 
in terms of divergence. Right now, we've onshored Amir Refit, but we have stopped onshoring any other guidance and from ESMA, and we have not onshored the regulatory or technical standards uh, because that happened at the very end of December. So what the industry is waiting for now is a uh, consultation from the FCA on uh, the EMEA refit and how that impacts on reporting. So the trade reporting, which is really complicated. The industry would really love it if the FCA dropped dual-sided and exchange-traded derivatives reporting and potentially make some other tweaks to simplify the regime. But it's not clear what how that is going to play out. The FCA has said it will look to align with the IOSCO standards, which don't recommend dual-side reporting or ETD reporting. But ESMA also says that it's aligned with the IOSCO standards, and they do recommend ETD and uh, dual-sided reporting. So there you go. Um, <clears throat> so one other uh, Amir-related uh, issue. So Amir brought in uh, central clearing for OTC derivatives. This was a big uh, kind of cliff-edge issue uh, running up to the Brexit deadline and all the various potential no-deal Brexit uh, deadlines where essentially almost all of your derivatives clearing happens here in the UK. There's no way to kind of port all these trades that are in the clearing house, UK clearing houses into uh, the uh, EU ones very easily. But, and, and so the solution was that ESMA has temporarily uh, recognized some UK CCPs. Now, they've already started pushing back on this, and it's been a, another area where we've had a little bit of uh, cross-channel shouting. Uh, <laughs> uh, Andrew Bailey made quite a big deal about it in the Mansion House speech, for example. He's saying, uh, derivatives clearing will stay here. Thank you very much. Now, ESMA this week has said, hmm, maybe not. We think it might be a systemic risk that too much clearing is happening in these UK CCPs. So after June uh, 2022, when these temporary uh, uh, recognitions of the UK CCP is supposed to end, we're going to look to uh, repatriate or bring into uh, EU clearinghouses more of the derivatives clearing. And this is this is another one to watch. It was a subject of a huge amount of chit chat prior to Brexit. Uh, you know, they'd have whole ISDA conferences on just sessions just on this and it, it, it's not an easy one Lynn's? yeah so um if we finally sort of come on to the point of why rachel and i have just spent 20 minutes taking everyone through the painstaking <laughs> details as we know them to date and they are painstaking um mm -hmm. for the divergence to date so um and this is where susanna you can share your wisdom with with us Obviously, all this has to be tracked, it has to be monitored, it has to be implemented. 
this is cost, this is duplication, possibly this is, you know, so if, you know, if you were still sitting in a compliance office and you had to, you're running a compliance team and you had to track all of this, um, you know, how, how would you say sane? That is presuming compliance officers are sane. I, I, w- I would slightly debate that point, I think. <laughs> I think there's several things in play here. One, it is a another source of regulatory change and, and, and perhaps even more critically, a another source of regulatory friction and potential arbitrage. If you are a really smart compliance officer, you may begin to look at how you might move business activities to accommodate, shall we say, appropriate divergent measures. That said, the biggest difference between the UK and the rest of Europe in terms of financial services and compliance is actually the supervisory approach. It's not the rule book. In the UK, we have a deeply transparent regulator, heaps of consultations, fair smattering of enforcement actions, stacks of speeches. There is a lot of line of sight to actually how the regulator wants to regulate. Compare and contrast to Europe. You, I mean, BaFin is, is probably an absolute case in point. BaFin does not particularly consult. BaFin doesn't particularly do speeches. And when it does enforcement actions, you're lucky if there are two paragraphs. We are not talking a transparent approach to regulation. It is a very, very different style as well. And now equally in in the UK, it is absolutely a well-trodden path that if you've got an issue, you find out all you can about it as fast as possible and you go talk to the regulator along with this is how we're going to sort it out. You did that to BaFin, they'd be absolutely astonished. Why have you come to see us? You know, we'll ask you if if we got a question about this, that and the other. So supervisory approach is absolutely critical in this. And The EU does recognise that and they are beginning to talk about supervisory convergence as well as rulebook convergence. But for me, if I put my head of compliance hat back on, that would still remain the biggest difference between how the UK operates and how, say, jurisdictions in Europe operate. Theoretically, the same rulebook, the detail of those rulebooks has always been different. So you would always have had to know about how precisely to do X, Y and Z in France. And it would not be the same as the X, Y and Z in the UK. So this is another source of regulatory change, friction and arbitrage. But in the scheme of if you are operating businesses or um, activities right across Europe, it's not a huge change because those differences were already there in the devil of the detail. Um, the UK rulebook is not the same as the rulebook in Spain or Italy or Greece or Norway. No, Norway's not a good example. Um, Denmark. And it's not just the rulebooks that uh, encourage divergence or, or enforce the divergence. I mean, it's the tax structures as well. Tax is a hugely... Uh, strong feature in products in financial services products the tax structure in germany is different to here in the uk it's different to italy and yet that tax structure drives the shape and the size and the nature of products so by nature we are have always been despite 
all of the EU's um, legislation. We have always been very different to the EU and individual jurisdictions, member jurisdictions within the EU remain different. There is plans for supervisory convergence, rulebook convergence, single markets for capital markets union, the whole nine yards. It's still a very long way away. So the, the differential that is now coming out because of Brexit is another thing you have to track, another thing you have to be aware of. But that still isn't going to be the biggest difference with how you deal with Europe. It, the biggest single thing is supervisory difference, supervisory divergence. The style of supervision in the UK compared to the rest of Europe is huge. The one thing I would say, however, is that the Irish regulator, the Central Bank of Ireland, is beginning to look more and more like the UK regulator. So it's not very, a universal very picture. Recently, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the Irish are upping their game very substantially. I suspect at least a part because some businesses move to Ireland because they, you can still use your passport from there. But Ireland is a regime definitely to watch because it's becoming much more like the UK, really transparently, deliberately. Um, so that, that was kind of a bit of a long answer and definitely me on my soapbox about Europe. But there are heaps of challenges. Um, but Brexit, in terms of the additional divergence, you will have to monitor, you will have to track, but it's not going to be huge if you are already dealing with the rest of Europe because there's so much divergence there already. So now I'm off my soapbox. Um, <laughs> the takeaways, ladies. Linz, what, what are your particular takeaways from all of this? Um, my, my takeaway is just that you really are going to have to stay on top of it somebody you know you have to you know to Rachel's scorecard or noting it all down I, you know that that's a that's a very valid point because you don't want to do you want to miss something you don't want to miss the opportunity to, to input something into a piece of legislation that is being revised especially if it's one that you've always hated and <laughs> don't see the point of so um yeah that's my takeaway yeah, and Rachel yeah, that's a great point, Lindsay. Uh, now is a good time to speak up and tr try to uh, advocate for some change uh, that on some of these difficult uh, uh, regulations, especially the Amir regime. You know, the regulators' ears are open now, and people should take advantage of that. But my other um, takeaway is that you like this uh, MIFID quick fix that we were talking about earlier, which I think took a good, you know, six, seven months to get through, maybe even longer, maybe eight, it started in July, just happened at the end of Feb. Um, none of this is going to be quick. Lindsay and I only ticked off a, a handful of the consultations and questions that are going on just in the UK right now, um, this is going to take a long time to sift through. Then, depending on whether uh, legislative uh, changes are needed, they'll have to go through the um, go through the House of Commons, House of Lords, the whole uh, uh, nine yards. And just to give you a little insight on that time frame, the financial services bill, which is just coming out the other side of the uh, uh, legislative process now, started in October, and it's, 
it, so it does take a long time for changes to come through. And on that note, thank you very much, Lindsay and Rachel. I mean, Brexit is going to be the gift that keeps on giving. There, there's just no two ways about that. And you are <laughs> going to have to stay on top of it. Um, and if you choose to engage and lobby, I think that will me absolutely mean as a firm that you have the best chance of not only shaping your own regulatory future, but also minimising the chances of bad rules, because bad rules serve absolutely nobody. So thank you very much for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified, and thank you for listening to the season one. We hope to be back with season two sometime after Easter. Now, in the episode notes, we're going to put a section of articles by Lindsay and Rachel. We're also going to put a link to the minutes of the forums between the US and the EU, Japan and the EU, and I'll also drop in a link to the FCA speech that Rachel was mentioning in particular. Also in the episode notes, I'll pop a download link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. And last but not least, we would very much appreciate it if you take the time to review the podcast and do let us know any suggestions you may have for future topics to be discussed in the next season of Compliance Clarified. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.